Welcome everyone to the Tori Sess Show. I'm your host, Tori. So yesterday I did a show about the dynamics that are happening between Turkey and Russia, bringing in players like Lebanon, Israel, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and now, and, and Iran. But in order to understand Iran, which you are seeing on your screen right now, well, you have to see Iran for what it is and understand the dynamics it has with other key players. You know, one of the most populated nations on the planet is China. But another overpopulated nation is India. And India, as you know, has been showcased on my shows before. But what is their relation to Iran? What kind of relations do they have with Iran? We do know that when we had put sanctions on them over the past couple years, India, India, Turkey and Russia have come to aid Iran, so has China. But the question is India, India and Iran. And like I said, to understand it, we're going to examine the dynamics between the two nations. Because today we're going to talk about Iran, but we're not going to negate to discuss India. I have shown you in the past these weird military bases that India has everywhere. See, yes, the U.S. has bases almost everywhere in the world, but so do other countries. So does Russia. But India, well, that one's going to blow your mind. And if you go back to that episode where I told you which intelligence right, agency is the most, most lethal, it was Pakistan. So let's bring Pakistan into the conversation. Pakistan, that has Shia Muslims by the Chinese border. Pakistan, hmm. that supports Azerbaijan and Turkey. You'll be very surprised who supports what. But in order for us to be able to understand the concepts and the views of these nations today. I believe it's imperative that we look at Iran as what it is, a developing nation. That our own country destroyed decades ago. Because you're going to see back in the 30s when we were supposed to be in the Stone Age, how Iran wasn't really in the Stone Age. Women were not wearing hijabs. Sharia law was not implemented. You ask me, that was always the plan. Create a radical government so that way you can keep it in the dark, so it can develop on its own. Consider it an enemy. Remember what it Iran's geopolitical significances brings together the East, the West, and Africa. Africa is coming into the purview. You never thought Iran looked like this. I wonder what you guys thought Iran did look like. But I think it's, <laughs> it's more fascinating when you see how it used to look like just under a hundred years ago, when people would have speeches on the street asking for votes, and just how 
free and organized they look. You know, it was only in the 70s where they had nightclubs on the strip. <laughs> but Peter Strzok's father and Barack Hussein Obama's mom, Stanley Ann Dunham, fixed that. Here they are in Iran having political conversations. Typical Persians. They're so proud in their politics. But you can spot a few women in the crowd that aren't wearing hijabs. I think I only spotted about two. One with poofy hair. They look so cheerful. If they only knew that the U.S. created the Muhammad... Well, I'll keep that to myself till later. How's that? Because you got to see the history. I can't just tell you. I've got to show you. Because we live in an era of fake news and real news <laughs> that are all intertwined. How about you don't see it as news? See it as information. And you will decide for yourself what information is important. Did you see the women? Well, here's Indian-Iranian relations. Let's look at that. But before we do that, let's personify India. Let's make India more realistic. Why don't you take a look at what India looks like so you can put a face with the name of the nation that we're speaking of. I think we're missing that. It's breathtaking. It's incredible. But one thing we need to remember, aside from the fact that India has a massive population, it also has a massive military reach. And we did show the island in Africa. They've got a base in Djibouti. Did you know about the one in Iran? It's what some of them coined the strings of pearls in order to ensure to keep China in check, I think. You'll be very impressed to see how they work. Troubles began as early as 2013 when China expanded its Belt and Road Initiative. Massive construction projects in Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and the Maldives caused unease in Delhi. If you ask me, uh, is, is our relationship normal today? My answer to you is no, it is not. China is clearly becoming a much stronger military power. India has also stepped up its participation in the Quad, which is a group of four countries, including the US, Australia, and Japan. Hi everybody, in the past three episodes of the geopolitical series, we saw how China started with something called the Belt and Road Initiative to conquer the world trade. Now just to give you a quick recap, firstly, China strategically used Djibouti, Sri Lanka, Myanmar and Pakistan's weak economic situation to surround India. Secondly, China spent billions of dollars into building oil refineries, high-speed cables, railway lines and even gas pipelines to build an alternate trade route around India. And lastly, China is building an extremely strategic railway line from London to China and another railway line from China to Iran 
passing through Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, finally ending at Tehran in Iran. This is how China is literally building its own trade route to become an economic superpower. And in this process, China intends to surround its rivals like India and eventually gain military and economic advantage over the United States. This is what we have covered until now. Now, when China is doing so many things, India is obviously not a saint to keep quiet and let China become stronger, right? So the question over here is, what exactly is India doing to tackle the security implications of the Belt and Road Initiative? What is India's strategy to face China in case of a military conflict? And lastly, what are the study materials to help you understand India's geopolitical moves better? This video is brought to you by Windwealth, but more on this at the end of the video. The answer to this lies in a very very important quote by a historian named Alfred Thayer. In his theory of sea dominance, Alfred Thayer said that, Whoever conquers the Indian Ocean will dominate the whole of Asia. So let's try to understand why is the Indian Ocean so so important in geopolitics. Well, if you look at the world map, you will see that the Indian Ocean region consists of 28 countries spanning across 3 continents and covers 17.5% of the global land area. These countries include 21 members of an association called the Indian Ocean Rim Association. This includes major nations like Australia, Bangladesh, India, Indonesia, Iran, Kenya, Malaysia, Oman, Singapore, South Africa, Sri Lanka, Thailand, UAE and Yemen. Then there are seven others who are not a part of this association which includes Brunei, Cambodia, Maldives, Myanmar, Pakistan, Timor-Leste and Vietnam. And this region is home to over 35% of the world's population which is around 2.6 billion people. Now if you notice something very peculiar about all these nations that I stated, you will realize that the Indian Ocean region is home to some of the fastest growing countries in the world. Secondly, it is one of the most strategic regions in the world which falls at the crossroads of the global trade itself. The Indian Ocean connects the international economies in the North Atlantic to the Asia-Pacific region and secondly, the major sea routes that connect the Middle East, Africa and East Asia with both Europe and America also lie in the Indian Ocean itself. And what is absolutely mind-boggling about the Indian Ocean is that 80% of the entire world's maritime oil trade flows through just three narrow passages of the Indian Ocean. These passages are at the Strait of Hormuz, Strait of Malacca and the Strait of Babel Mandip. These points are what we call as choke points. As in, if you choke these points, the major part of the world trade itself will come to a standstill. If this is very very clear to you, let's understand these choke points better. The Strait of Hormuz is a strait between the Persian Gulf and the Gulf of Oman. The Strait of Malacca, as you know, is this place between the Malay Peninsula and the Indian Ocean island of Sumatra. The Babel Mandip is a strait between Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula, Djibouti and Eritrea in the Horn of Africa. This strait connects the Red Sea to the Gulf of Eden. And apart from these three choke points, we have four more, which are the Mozambique Channel, the Suez Canal, the Sunda Strait and the Lombok Strait. Now, if you remember from our previous episode, China has very clearly entered very close to all these choke points. To establish dominance over the Strait of Hormuz, China has the Gwardar port in Pakistan on a 40-year lease. And it also has its infrastructure and railway lines to Iran. To establish dominance over the Strait of Babel Mandeb and the Swiss Canal, China has debt-trapped Djibouti to build its naval base. And then, to capitalize on the Strait of Malacca, Sunda Strait and the Lombok Strait, China has made strategic alliance with Indonesia to build its infrastructure projects. And if you go through the details of the Chinese relations very very closely, you will see that China has already established very close relations with the Mozambique government and has established control over a port called the Dar es Salaam port in Tanzania. 
So in short, the world trade can be stopped within a jiffy if you have control over these choke points in the Indian Ocean. And at the same time, if you do not have control over these points, your enemy can block your trade in no time. And quite evidently, China has slowly extended its dominance over all these choke points. This is the reason why the Indian Ocean is an extremely crucial region with respect to maritime trade and more importantly for India because of China. But the story does not end here. Apart from maritime trade routes, the Indian Ocean contains some of the most precious resources in the world. In fact, a large portion of the resources of the Indian Ocean is yet to be explored. And it is said that 16.8% of the entire world's reserves and 27.9% of natural gas reserves are in the Indian Ocean itself. And this is where the Indo-China conflict comes in. The string of pearls theory very simply is that China is trying to encircle India um, with a number of naval bases in surrounding countries in such a way that it's like a, a, a string of pearls around your neck. The Chinese can then tighten to choke you and choke your neck. There is a cold war that is created between India and China. The string of pearls theory has been discussed for more than a decade. And the Ukraine crisis has renewed interest in the subject. My answer to that has always been, even if they're trying to do it, which is debatable, I would say that India has a fairly robust neck and that is not so easily strangled. China has very strategically emerged as one of the most important trading partners of the Indian Ocean region and it accounts for 16.1% of its total goods trade as of 2017. And like we saw in the Belt and Road video, in the past two decades, China has been building infrastructure projects in Sri Lanka, Myanmar, Pakistan and Djibouti. Why? Because all of these regions fall in the trade route of China's oil imports and their exports to Africa, Middle East and Europe. So we have the Gwadar port in Pakistan, Humble Toda port in Sri Lanka, Djibouti's naval base and even Myanmar's Quake Few port. This is what is being called as the strings of pearls theory. Now the burning question over here is, what exactly is India doing to tackle it? Well, instead of openly and boldly announcing its strategy like China, India has been slowly and steadily operating in a stealth mode with something called the Necklace of Diamonds strategy. To understand this, let's take a look at the list of strategic bases India has set up with partner countries as well as the various trade agreements that India has signed. And by the way, you must have seen a lot of people who often criticize the Prime Minister saying that he's wasting India's money by taking a world tour. Well, for those of you, here's why the Prime Minister of India spends countless hours in traveling all around the world. First, let's start from the counter for China's strategic placement at Gwadar and Djibouti. For this, India has very cleverly placed its base over here in Oman. And here's where we have the Dakum port. The Dakum port is where 
India's important crude imports flow from the Persian Gulf. This place is strategically located on the southeastern seaboard of Oman and is overlooking both the Arabian Sea and the Indian Ocean. On top of that, it is also straddled along the critical sea lanes in the Arabian Sea and the Gulf of Eden. And all thanks to India's relation with Oman, we have military access to this port which makes it a great defense point. Then we come to this region that is close to the second choke point which is the Mozambique Channel. In 2015, Modiji signed an agreement with the Seychelles president to develop a place called the Assumption Island for military use. But unfortunately, after this deal was done, there were a lot of protests, there was a change in government because of which this diamond as of now is in a shaky situation. Then we come to perhaps the most important choke point of all which is the Strait of Malacca and the other two choke points right beside it. Here's where we have the Changi Naval Base, wherein in 2018, Modiji signed an agreement with the government of Singapore. This agreement has provided direct access to the Indian Navy itself. So while sailing through the South China Sea, the Indian Navy can refuel and rearm its ship through this base. This is followed by the Sabahang port in Indonesia. And again, in 2018, India got military access to Sabahang port, which is located right at the entrance of the Malacca Strait. So theoretically, we have a firm grip over the Strait of Malacca. And if you remember from our China's BRA video, 70% of China's oil supply and 60% of their trade passes through the Strait of Malacca. So choking this point is like choking the Chinese economy itself. After that, we have the Indo-Vietnam Diamond and long story short, we have historically had a great relationship with Vietnam, we supply some of the most important defense equipment to Vietnam and we have signed a comprehensive strategic partnership with Vietnam in 2016 itself. Then we have our important diamond in Japan. On 9th of September 2020, India and Japan signed something called the Acquisition and Cross-Servicing Agreement that would allow militaries of both these countries to exchange supplies and services on a reciprocal basis. So again, Japan and India can use each other's port as per their strategic requirements. And the best part about this point is that if you look at the map, you will see that it gives us a very very close placement to the mainland of China itself. And then we have Mongolia, where Modiji became the first Indian Prime Minister to visit and more importantly, India has established a very strong relation with Mongolia by giving out a $1 billion credit to develop an air corridor for Mongolia. And lastly, we have the Chabhar port in Iran. And if you remember from our China video, again, Iran is also a part of the Chinese BRI initiative wherein they have a railway line from China to Iran, passing through Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan to finally ending at Tehran in Iran. So here's where India very cleverly understood the importance of Iran. So in 2015 itself, when Iran was facing crippling economic sanctions and diplomatic isolation, India agreed to develop a deep water port in Chabhar on the Gulf of Oman. And as a part of this deal, Modiji visited Iran and signed the agreement worth $500 million to develop this port and related infrastructure. And if you see, it's not just strategic with respect to China's infra in Iran, but also very very close to the Gwadar port in Pakistan. Now if you connect all these points together on the world map, you will see that it's literally a necklace around China and more importantly, they are strategically located points that can be used to counter the Chinese in case of any military conflict. Now although the relations with all these countries is not as ideal as we would like, it is a very very significant step to make sure that the dragon is not left completely loose. This is what India is doing to make sure that we are protected from the notorious Chinese moose. And this brings me to the most important part of the episode and that are the study materials to help you understand India's geopolitical relations and strategy Moving on, better. the first document I am attaching comes from the International Relations and Strategic Studies Institute. This document 
explains the importance of the Indian Ocean and this document will give you a very very clear understanding as to why is Indian Ocean so important for the global economy. Secondly, I am attaching a document on the Belt and Road Initiative of China which will give you a deeper understanding of what exactly is China trying to do and for this you can even check out our previous video. And lastly, I am attaching this super important Quad Summit fact sheet which will teach you about the important relationship that we are forming with the US. Australia and Japan. Read through this document very very carefully because it will give you a very deep understanding about how India and other nations actually collaborate together to actually tackle their common threats and to capitalize on their opportunity. So as citizens of India, using these documents you will very easily be able to understand the international relations strategy of India to counter China and other threats. Pay attention to this. This is a video uploaded last night by Secretary Blinken in respects to India. Not only is the chair of the United Nations 1373 Counterterrorism Committee, but also of the 1988 Taliban Sanctions Committee, as well as the robust engagement in the 1267 Committee on ISIL and Al-Qaeda. As we marked 14 years since the horrific attacks of November 26th, we join people in India and around the world in mourning the lives lost. 141 Indians, six Americans, and victims from 15 other countries from every region of the world, as well as many Mumbaikars, Americans, and others wounded with scars visible and invisible. We stand in solidarity with the people of India and all nations that lost people on that day. But we must do more than mourn. We have a responsibility to the victims and to people everywhere to bring justice to the perpetrators of the Mumbai attacks, including their masterminds. That's what the United States has been working to do together with India and other partners for the last 14 years. Because when we allow the architects of these attacks to go unpunished, we send a message to terrorists everywhere that their heinous crimes will be tolerated. Many members of the Security Council, including the United States, have adopted our own sanctions against the terrorists behind these attacks. But our accountability efforts are more effective when we act together, which is why we've worked with India to put forward nominations to designate several terrorists through the UN 1267 Committee. All relevant parties should support these designations. No nation should stand in their way. Beyond ensuring full accountability for 2611, we also have a responsibility to prevent future attacks like it. That requires addressing new and emerging threats, such as terrorists increasing abuse of technologies in the internet to finance and plan attacks, store assets, and radicalize and recruit members. The United States is working with the private sector to address these vulnerabilities, from getting financial technology companies to enhance and enforce policies aimed at preventing their illicit use, to helping platforms ensure that they're not hosting terrorist content and spreading hate. But we can't do it alone, and we're ready to work with all governments, multilateral bodies, and companies in this effort. Minister Jaishankar, fellow council members, as we reflect on the immeasurable loss 2611, let it be a reminder to all of us of our unfinished work in holding accountable the perpetrators of its horrors and averting future terrorist attacks like it on any of our people, anywhere. Thank you. While the Biden administration has been striving to confuse India and their strategy as they're terrified of BRICS conglomerate, India is unstoppable. It has forged amazing relationships with Mongolia, jumping to the other side of China.
The Indians throughout history, and they've been around for eons, are very good at strategizing. There are some ancient wars that you wouldn't believe happened and won or failed. But this demonstrates to you how much is going on in the background that you are not aware of, you are not understanding the significance of. Just like our politics in the United States, global politics are no different. It's tribal. Old gods, new gods. Which will you pick? This is the point to where they've reduced us all to be. While there are many nations across the world with eons of history, in comes the West to rein them all in. Completely in an incomplete disregard to thousands of years of history that these nations have, which translates to experience. If you're going into a boxing ring and you're going to fight with someone, who do you choose? The person that just put on the gloves and has no idea what they're doing or maybe some kind of idea? Or do you go up against the person that has been seasoned, that has had thousands of years worth of experience in the brain? Obviously, you're going to pick the new guy. So then how do the new gods, the new order, believe that they have an advantage over experience? Do they believe that through methods of espionage or Judas tactics that they'll learn thousands of years worth of experience? That's a question all of us should be asking ourselves completely objectively. What ace do they have in their pocket? Because India has been making China very, very, very nervous. Their talks with Mongolia are key. Remember, we discussed this a couple of years ago with the Arctic Council and how Russia has been giving some easements in the Arctic for Russia. That was concerning. India has no business in the Arctic. China doesn't either, but Russia does. And then you have to think, well, what nations does India get along with? With its string of pearls strategy, China over the years planned a complete encircling policy against India. With the debt trap port capturing diplomacy, China built dual-use ports in India's neighborhood. The recent arrival of a spy ship in Hambantota port was the end result of its aggressive policies. Although India completely destroyed the communication system of the spy ship, China's presence in the neighborhood remained a security threat to the nation. Thus, it becomes imperative to not only secure India's sovereignty, but also give China a taste of its own medicine. So, to counter the modern imperial China, India has launched a comprehensive necklace of diamonds strategy. From the Indian Ocean to Central Asia and the Pacific Ocean to Arabian Sea, India made a huge counter push against China. Now, this latest move by India is bound to give Jinping night terrors. Namaskar and welcome to TFI English, the national socio-political analysis arm of the TFI Media Group. I'm your host Piyush and if you are watching us on Facebook, give our page a like. And if you're watching us on YouTube, like the video and subscribe to the channel. Coming back to the story, in this video, I will explain 
why Rajnath Singh's visit to Mongolia is bound to send shivers down China's spine. Let's begin. In India's grand necklace of diamond strategy, Mongolia, the immediate neighbor of China, forms a critical part. Sandwiched between Russia and China, Mongolia provides a great geostrategic advantage to India. In connaissance with the geopolitical advantages, India over the years has made significant presence in the country and the recent visit of India's defense minister further intensified the position. According to the reports, Rajnath Singh, the defense minister of India, is on an official visit to Mongolia. As Rajnath Singh becomes the first Indian defense minister to visit the country, the move has significant geopolitical implications. The two countries discussed effective and practical initiatives to further expand bilateral defense engagements and deliberated on regional and global issues of mutual interest. The defense ministers of both countries reaffirmed their commitment to fully implement the strategic partnership based on mutual trust and understanding, common interest and shared values of democracy and rule of law. As Rajnath Singh inaugurated the Cyber Security Training Center built with India's assistance, the two countries also made progress talks on the ongoing oil refinery project that is being built with India's assistance. The diplomatic relations between the two countries were established in 1955. Mongolia considers India a spiritual neighbor. During PM Modi's first visit in 2015, Mongolia declared India a strategic partner. This visit is an extended process for India to strengthen strategic relations expanding over joint working groups, military-to-military -military talks, capacity building and training programs. With a billion-dollar line of credit, India announced to help Mongolia in infrastructure development. Further, the militaries of the two countries hold an annual military exercise called the Nomadic Elephant to enhance the interoperability of the respective armies. The strategic cooperation between India and Mongolia has sent shivers down China's spine. Like other neighbors, China's relationship with Mongolia is also in a bad state. Inner Mongolia, which traditionally was a part of mainland Mongolia, remained a disputed territory between the two countries. In its independence movement, the Mongols in the disputed territory continued to fight against China to free the land. In response to that, China has constantly suppressed the voice of Inner Mongolians, which has also been the core reason for tensions. The growing India-Mongolia Bonhomi will pose a serious threat to China's security. As India cements its strategic cooperation, any miscalculation on the part of China with any of the two countries will have negative implications. Russia is constructing a 2600km power of Siberia 2 pipeline, which delivers Europe-bound natural gas from western Siberian Russian fields to China, transiting through Mongolia. The plan has been made after the Ukraine war as Russian energy giant Gazprom looks to route its energy to Asia. The power of Siberia 2 capacity is to deliver 50 billion cubic meters of natural gas to China. The intense security presence of India in Mongolia will always keep a security cloud over the pipeline. As the pipeline passes through Mongolia, India will have a strategic advantage to choke energy supplies to China in case of any warlike conditions. It is pertinent to understand that amid Russia's focus on Ukraine, China has transgressed along its northeastern borders. True to its behavior, China looks to eat the territory of Russia. Afraid of Chinese aggression, Russia will never side with China in any condition. Further, even if Russia stays neutral, the influence that the country maintains in Central Asia 
will be sufficient to choke the other route of energy supply to China. As in the case of choking supply chain through the Strait of Malacca and Mongolia, the only route through which China can import energy is Central Asia. Moreover, securing the military access to Sabang port in Indonesia, India has almost choked out the Chinese large chunk of trade and crude along the Malacca Strait. In addition to this, almost every China's neighbor is building strategic relations with India. They made various defense deals to buy India's Brahmos, LCA Tejas, and other military hardware. Advancing with the comprehensive necklace of diamond strategy, India's strategic presence in Mongolia will completely encircle China. John O'Rourke. Nice to meet you, John. Mr. Ian Roberts. Right. Nice to meet you. Peter Tensio. All right. Nice to meet you. Jerome Smith. Come on. Bro. What's up, fam? <laughs> you know this. Keith Williamson. Nice to meet you. Mary right. Woodbury. Nice to meet you. Jay Martell. Nice to meet you, sir. Tasha Robbins. Come on, come oh. on, come on. <laughs> Feel that? Emily George. All right. Nice to meet you. Daryl Stokes. Come on. What's up, fam? How you doing? All right. Never forget about that. That's all we got. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. All right. Oh, bring it in, bring it in. <laughs> Starting from the bottom, now we're here. Yeah. Nice to meet you. All right. Nice to meet you. All right. One eighth black. Afternoon, my octoroon. Come on, bring yeah, it in there. I'm, that. I'm, I'm in there, dog. I'm in there, dog. I'm in there, dog. You talking to me? But you're not, dog. You talking to me? I'm in there. You come in there. I'm in there. All right. Nice to meet you, man. Uh, nice to meet you. Oh, my goodness. Look at this. Oh, she is so beautiful. Mm. I want another one. There you go. Precious. Beautiful. Beautiful. What's her name? Oh, this is Livia Ruji. Okay. Nice to meet you, Miss Ruji. All right. Yeah, come on. There he is. Boom. <laughs> All right, very good to meet you. All right. Here we go. Right this way, sir. Into an historic partnership, a partnership that honors our place as great powers and great democracies. We're, as I said, lucky to have a vice president who understands this vital importance and this relationship, who understands the importance of aligning our interests and our values, and that's why he has always believed so strongly in the vitality of the relationship with India. The vice president... The vice president and I have uh, been friends now for about 40 years. And, of course, uh, he has been almost just as long a period of time a great friend of India. We were longtime colleagues in the Senate where I saw again and again his personal relationships at home and on the world stage work to advance the interests of our country. Thank you, Mr. Vice President, for joining us today. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. It's great to be here today. Uh, um, I did tell the president that uh, we were going to be late for lunch, but he didn't listen to me. He, 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 he took the, uh, the prime minister to see uh, the, uh, the memorial, but uh, so it's all the president's fault we're late. I'm with you. <laughs> Mr. Prime Minister, once again, welcome. It's an honor to have you here. Uh, Secretary Kerry and and I, and along with President Obama, enjoyed our dinner last night. We had a small dinner where uh, I think uh, 
all of us thought it was a, a remarkable, uh, a remarkable uh, um, way in which uh, Senator, uh, Senator, President Obama and uh, and the Prime Minister uh, uh, connected. Um, each discussing what each of our countries faced and what needed to be done. It was uh, it, it was really quite remarkable. I've been to many of these dinners, but I can't think of anyone that uh, uh, went as well. And uh, and happy uh, Navaratri, Mr. Uh, 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 Prime Minister. It's uh, good of you to honor us, visiting us, and on during this Holy Week. And. Uh, uh, the Prime Minister is, uh, is fasting, and we keep taking him to dinners and lunches. Um, and uh, remarkable. I've been to many of these dinners, but I can't think of anyone that uh, uh, went as well. And, uh, and happy uh, Navaratri, Mr. Uh, uh, Prime Minister. It's uh, good of you to honor us, visiting us and on, during this Holy Week. And... Uh, uh, the Prime Minister is, uh, is fasting, and we keep taking him to dinners and lunches. Um, and uh, as we Catholics would say, that's an occasion for sin. Uh, but um, uh, we appreciate the fact he has spent so much time with us. And it's good to have a chance to come together to celebrate uh, the relationship that has grown enormously over the past uh, two decades. I don't think it could have been said better than the way uh, Secretary Kerry said it. This has always been the promise, the promise over the horizon. There was no reason why the oldest and the largest democracy should not be working together. But it's been a promise, and it's always just been out of reach. But uh, I think one, one of the reasons why it's come into reach uh, is not just uh, uh, because of uh, the, the Prime Minister, but because of the ways in which uh, the different ethnicities, faces, uh, faiths, tongues uh, uh, of both our proud nations have come together. Uh, you know, uh, the way, uh, as John said, the way uh, entrepreneurship seems to be hardwired into both cultures, where Indian Americans whose talents have shaped the fabric of this country and our schools and our hospitals and our courtrooms and our government and our arts, entertainment, Main Street to Silicon Valley, uh, and uh, the way it's reflected in our nation's military uniforms and those who wear them. You know, uh, most of all, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, we admire, we admire your democracy and the message it sends to people around the world. No nation, no nation has to choose between development and freedom. We can and must secure both. They go hand in hand. I saw these virtues firsthand in a number of visits I have made to India over the year. Most recently, uh, Mr. Prime Minister, I, uh, I uh, brought my wife Jill and my daughter and my son-in-law to India with me uh, less than a year ago. And, uh, we, uh, we, and I learned something, as I told you, in the anteroom. When I was in Mumbai, Secretary Kissinger, I found out that uh, what I had heard for so many years was true, that uh, I actually had relatives in Mumbai, uh, for real. A press person after the second press conference I had presented me with a portrait, a, a copy of a portrait of my great-great-great-grandfather, 
who the Irish part of me is hard to admit, but was an English sea captain um, who, uh, who settled uh, and lived in India. And there are three Biden families in Mumbai. So I'm going home with you, Mr. <laughs> And uh, my wife and my daughter got to see what I've had the ability to see in the past. The incredible dynamism and diversity that reinforced in all of us the remarkable fact uh, where we find ourselves. The question is no longer is whether it's in the interest of the United States and India to build a strong relationship. As President Obama says, into the defining partnership of the century ahead, uh, the question is how ambitious and how rapidly are we prepared to build that partnership? And I believe, as the President does, we should be bold. Mr. President, you mentioned, uh, President Trump, you mentioned trade. Uh, you, I know you're talking about the Trump Well, I think very soon we're doing very well, and Bob Lighthizer, who's right here, was negotiating with India, and they're very capable representatives. And I think uh, very soon we'll have a trade deal. Uh, we'll have the larger deal down the road a little bit, but we will have a trade deal very soon.
uh, like a father would bring it together. And maybe he's the father of India. We'll call him the father of India. I think that's not so bad. But he brought things together, and you don't hear that anymore. So uh, I think he's done a fantastic job. And I think that what the event showed is how much I like uh, the country of India and, I, and how much I like your prime minister. Uh, I, I, there was tremendous spirit in that room, too. And, and they love this gentleman to my right. They really do. Those, those people went crazy. That was like Elvis. That was like an American. He's like an American version of Elvis. That was like we brought in the middle of a, an all-American deal. Elvis Presley came back. No, he was, uh, that was quite something. They love you, Prime Minister. It's a great thing. How do you see the statement coming from the Pakistani Prime Minister admitting that the Pakistani state, the ISI, trained Al-Qaeda? How do you see... Well, I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that. And I know this, that uh, your Prime Minister will take care of it. So if there's a problem, he'll take it. It would be great if they could work out something on Kashmir. We all want to see that, I'm sure. But isn't we terror all a bigger issue, sir? Pakistan state-sponsored terror. Is there a roadmap to deal with Pakistan state-sponsored terror? Well, you have great terror? reporters. I wish I had reporters like this. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing better than anybody I've ever heard. Where do you find these reporters? This is a great thing. No, look, you have a, a great prime minister. He'll solve the problem. I have no doubt about it. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm welcoming to the stage, all together now, Howdy Modi. For something more, a sense of leadership, a passion for America, a concern for every American, a belief in American future and a strong resolve to make America great again. बार ट्रंप सरकार इंडिया विल हैव एक्सेस टू अनदर वर्ल्ड क्लास अमेरिकन प्रोडक्ट एनबीए बास्केटबॉल वाओ साउंड्स गुड दैट साउंड्स गुड एविडेंटली प्रेसिडेंट ट्रंप एंड प्राइम मिनिस्टर मोदी हैड Uh, had in, an incredible relationship forged, and they are still friendly. You know, I'm pretty sure that Prime Minister Modi, uh, you know, kind of maybe marketed, "Hey, why not you bricks or brick us?" That relationship 
And those dynamics are what the Biden administration loathes. So now behold, based on the fact that President Trump had such great relations and we had such great expectations, obviously the Biden administration will take a hammer to anything. And this is one of them. They attempted through the deep state operations that the State Department always deploys, create infiltration, confusion, division, riots, and protests. This is Psychological Operations 101. This is reality hacking. And Prime Minister Modi had none of that. In India, the world's largest democracy and home to a great diversity of faiths, uh, we've seen rising attacks on people in places of worship. Beyond these countries, uh, the report documents how religious freedom and the rights of religious minorities are under threat in communities around the world. For example, in India, the world's largest democracy and home to a great diversity of faiths, uh, we've seen rising attacks on people in places of worship. In India, some officials are ignoring or even supporting rising attacks on people and places of worship. another example of how the Democrats seem to be psychic and know that they have problems between the Hindus and the Muslims. This is before an incident happened a few weeks ago that went mostly unnoticed by our mainstream media. But the question is, why would Blinken do something? Why would he deploy the USAID and his well-trained London School of Economics, BJP? Wait, if you haven't heard about it, here you go. This is how you cause ruckus. And don't forget, it was because Prime Minister Modi rejected 
what his report said and said we can't impose religious laws on constitutionally protected rights of religion. So he was a bit salty and he went to work. India's continuing to deal with the diplomatic fallout today as well of the controversial remarks on Prophet Muhammad made by former BJP spokespersons with several countries in the Gulf denouncing the comments and welcoming action uh, taken by the ruling party against those who made the comments. Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan also joined other Gulf countries in officially condemning the remarks on the Prophet made by two BJP leaders who have since been suspended. The controversy erupted amid Vice President Venkai Naidu's tour of Qatar. The BJP suspended Nupur Sharma and expelled Naveen Jindal who had made the comments against Prophet Muhammad and his wife a few days ago. The BJP on Sunday had also released a statement stressing that the ruling parties against any ideology which insults or demeans any sect or religion as there was a growing backlash in Gulf countries with calls to boycott Indian products. In fact, there are visuals from some of the countries like Kuwait where Indian products are actually being removed from shelves in grocery stores. Now, uh, India has also rejected, however, a statement by the Organization of Islamic Cooperation as unwarranted and narrow-minded. And this is something that has happened in the past as well. Uh, the 57-nation Organization of Islamic Cooperation issued a strong condemnation of what it called abuses by an official of the ruling party in India, but then also linked the comments to previous decisions to ban the hijab at educational institutions in certain Indian states, violence against minorities and demolitions of their property. Then MEA said the government of India categorically rejects the OIC Secretariat's unwarranted and narrow-minded comments. The government of India accords the highest respect to all religions. It is regrettable that OIC Secretariat has once again chosen to make motivated, misleading and mischievous comments. Uh, but now opposition uh, parties have also start, uh, hit out over this entire controversy and the embarrassment that it has caused the country. A Telangana minister, Katie Rama Rao, targeted the center over the backlash uh, from the Gulf uh, following the remarks of the spokespersons. Uh, KTR questioned why India as a country should apologize for the hate speeches of BJP bigots. Addressing the prime minister, he said his party should apologize to Indians at home for spewing and spreading hatred. He tweeted, dear uh, prime Minister Narendra Modi ji, why should India as a country apologize to international community for the hate speeches of BJP bigots? It is BJP that should apologize, not India as a nation. Your party should first apologize to Indians at home for spewing and spreading hatred day in and day out. Shiv Sena MP Priyanka Chaturvedi also blamed the BJP for the diplomatic disaster, tweeting embarrassed our great nation and sent a terrible example of India's traditional values of sardharm and for political benefits. The nation has has to say sorry to long-standing allies for the deeds of the BJP. The least the BJP leadership can do is to apologize to the nation. Uh, Rahul Gandhi also tweeted, divided internally, India becomes weak externally. BJP's shameful bigotry has not only isolated us, but also damaged India's standing globally. Uh, meanwhile, Asaduddin Novesi has demanded that the BJP spokesperson be arrested. अगर ये लोग हॉस्टिलिटी शुरू कर देंगे और हेट वायलेंस वहां पर शुरू हो जाएगा इंडियंस के ऊपर तो कौन जिम्मेदार है प्रधानमंत्री जी बताइए और देश को 55 परसेंट रेमिटेंस यही कंट्रीज से आता है जिसका मैंने भी नाम लिया क्या कर रहे हैं कौन सी फॉरेन पॉलिसी है प्रधानमंत्री जी आपकी छप्पन इंच की सीना की फॉरन पॉलिसी आपने देश की फॉरन पॉलिसी को बर्बाद कर दिया 
जो डोमेस्टिक हेट पॉलिटिक्स है वो फॉरेन पॉलिसी को आप कन्वर्ट कर दिए उसको और उसका खैमियजा हम देख रहे हैं कि कभी ऐसा नहीं हुआ कि देश के एम्बेसडर्स को कंट्रीज बुलाकर कह रहे हैं कि आपने गलत का डिमार्स दे रहे हैं कि आप माफी चाहिए आप माफी चाहिए ईरान के फॉरेन मिनिस्टर आइंदा हफ्ते आने वाले ईरान हमारे देश के एम्बेसडर को बुलाकर बोलता है कि आपने प्रॉफिट मोहम्मद सल्लाम की इंसल्ट की है माफी चाहिए वाइस प्रेसिडेंट खतर में है मैं उनकी खतर मौजूदगी में एम्बेसडर को बुलाकर कहा जाता है इतनी बड़ी बेजती भारत की Muslim Sikh or Hindus are the same but for some reason some reason the poor who studied at the London School of Economics actually worked a little bit at GCHQ she just came up with insulting the prophet Muhammad which many people would say oh that's okay because what she said is true you know about the child bride well the matter of fact is this is how you cause tensions within a nation why because you're going to see where india sits too where india sits in the armenian conflict right they're supplying weapons to armenia again we're seeing the camps formulate and it's all centering around the same area now i've cut the audio from this clip but i'm going to replay this clip with audio for you guys to hear it because i think it's very very important that all of us understand how the psychological operations are not just deployed within the US but overseas india had musicians making racist songs and pushing them out causing problems amongst the indian community they can live in harmony they have been but suddenly it's a problem a few months after Lincoln says that they have problems and they're treated differently. We all have problems. Every nation has problems, especially when there's diversity, not only in the way we look, but the way we think and the way we operate. So, it's extremely upsetting when you see these genocidal type songs, this tribalism that I've been talking about to cause polarity within nations because that is how you destroy their infrastructure. by getting the people to fight amongst each other so that the big boys can take care of big boy things and money wasn't having any of it he quashed it immediately the person who said it was dismissed but it caused disruption with muslim nations you know saying hey you're insulting it's as if someone from a political party comes out and says you know profane things about jesus or anyone else right you would be up in arms too so this was purposely done just another day for the deep state department that's basically it and the reason is is because india is a pretty big player with a pretty big population too hindu ka hai hindustan it is not yet a mainstream kind of music but it is a spreading very fast it's just a matter of time that it can become like you know, one of the major genre
for blood and violence. So earlier the song was based on the certain idea of the unity. Now music are based on othering that you are always trying to other one community, and it becomes a very genocidal in its tone that you have all genocidal kinds of approach in the songs. सरकारी जमीन पे कब्जा हुआ है और एमसीडी की जमीन है उनके पास दस्तावेज हैं तो वो तो अपनी रिकवरी करेंगे ना जब राजपोल लोग विदेशी हैं जी वो इन्फिल्ट्रेशन करके एंट्री हुए हैं और बांग्लादेशी और रोहिंग्याज मुस्लिम ज्यादा हैं यहाँ के नहीं हो इसलिए वहां विवाद बढ़ा है कुछ भी नहीं है यहाँ के मुस्लिमों से कोई विवाद नहीं है So first time they are coming just to because they love the music, they love the festival. They are coming to this music ground, and after that they are becoming part of these kinds of crowd, the part of these kinds of hate mongers in their sense. It is becoming part of the common consciousness where you are not realizing and you are participating in these kinds of hate songs many times, and that becomes a certain kinds of like things to be afraid of, things that is going to very dangerous level. We're talking outrage. What this comment did was complete outrage throughout the Arab and Muslim nations, calling the Hindus far right. I guess you know you don't have a Christian population, so they have to target them. But it was very insulting, and it really overstepped the line. And I believe that's because India refused to make the alignments that they want her to. Because India is very well situated, as you will see, because full circle, we're coming back to Iran, and we're going to find out. Well, we're going to come full circle to Iran to understand what is really going on there.、Uh, strongly encourage、uh, respect and tolerance、uh, for all religions. World over the blasphemous remarks by、uh, leaders of the、uh, Indian ruling party、uh, about Prophet Muhammad.、Uh, do you have any reaction on that? I, I've seen stories. I, I haven't seen the the remarks、uh, themselves, but I, I mean, regardless, I can tell you that we、uh, strongly encourage、uh, respect and tolerance、uh, for all religions. Meanwhile, India is hosting an important visitor, Amir Abdullahian. He is a foreign minister of Iran, and right now he is on a three-day visit to India. Wednesday was the day of engagements. 
He had three important meetings lined up, one with Prime Minister Modi of India, one with External Affairs Minister S.J. Shankar and one with National Security Advisor Ajit Doval. This trip is important for two reasons. Number one, the timing. It comes just days after the controversy around Prophet Muhammad. Iran had summoned the Indian envoy over it on Sunday, one of the first countries to do so. Days later, their foreign minister is in New Delhi. Reason number two, Amir Abdullahian represents the new government in Iran, the government of Ibrahim Raisi. Remember, S.J. Shankar had attended his swearing-in back in August 2021. The hope is that this new government can reset ties. With that said, how did the talks go? The meeting with the Prime Minister, Prime Minister Modi, went fine. He invited, the Iranian minister invited the Indian Prime Minister to visit Iran. He also stressed on the various areas of cooperation, so nothing controversial there. The meeting with Foreign Minister S.J. Shankar also went fine. The two discussed the Chabahar port, Afghanistan, Ukraine, and also the nuclear deal progress. Again, nothing controversial. Then came the meeting with National Security Advisor Ajit Doval. Soon after the meeting, Iran published a readout. What did it say? Two important things. One, that Abdullahian raised the issue of Prophet Muhammad with the NSA. And two, that Ajit Doval promised to teach the offenders a lesson. Sounds a bit off, doesn't it? Not the kind of language you expect from an official readout. Indian government sources immediately rejected this version. They said it does not accurately represent the conversation. Hours later, the readout was removed. What does this entire episode signify? That Iran and India are looking at convergence, not differences. It is a sign of a mature and resilient relationship, one that is not derailed by random personal remarks. In fact, Iran says it is satisfied with India's response. So instead of focusing on the differences, India and Iran focused on shared priorities, mainly three of them, connectivity via the Chabahar port, energy security, and Afghanistan. These are the three cornerstones of Iran-India ties. First, the Chabahar port. India and Iran signed a deal to develop one berth at Chabahar. This was back in 2016. India promised to invest $500 million in Chabahar, but the project never really took off. Donald Trump's sanctions were one reason. Iran's open embrace of China was another. But this is a new government in Tehran. And they are giving Chabahar another shot. Teams from India and Iran will begin meetings to discuss port operations. If successful, this port could be a game changer because this port, Chabahar, gives India access to two strategic locations, Afghanistan and Central Asia. The second factor is energy security. Simply put, oil. India was the biggest consumer of Iranian oil. But then came U.S. sanctions in 2019. India was forced to stop importing Iranian crude. Ideally, both sides would like to restart that trade. For starters, they already use the rupee-real trade mechanism. And secondly, Iranian imports would cool off oil prices. The third factor is Afghanistan. Instability in Afghanistan affects both India and Iran. More refugees for Iran, more security threats for India. But on this issue, and on this issue rather, both countries are on the same page. They opposed the Taliban during their first regime, and this time too. They are wary. Both Iran and India have called for an inclusive government in Kabul. So clearly, there is convergence on the three T's, trade, terror, and transit. But beyond that, is there scope for a political partnership? Well, right now, it seems unlikely.
You see, Iran and China have signed a 25-year cooperation agreement. China is expected to invest $400 billion in Iran over the next 25 years. $400 billion. If that isn't picking a side, I don't know what is. Another reason is India's own West Asian partnerships. Last year, India joined a new quad in West Asia. You know who the other members are? Israel, the UAE and the US. All three are rivals of Iran. Now do you see the problem here? India's fierce non-alignment allows it to pursue such contrasting partners, Israel and Iran, Russia and America. But to what extent? At the end of the day, Iran is getting $400 billion from China. That money comes with a lot of political strings. So India's priority must be to focus on shared interests, minimize differences, maximize convergence. We'll see how that goes. Vion is now available in your country. Download the app now and get all the news on the move. Her Excellency, President Rouhani, friends, thank you, Excellency, for your warm and wise words. I'm also grateful to you for the gracious hospitality given to me and my delegation. Ali Janab Rais Jamhur Rouhani, Padustan. Bepasse Sukhanan Garm, Bakhirad Mandaniyatan, as Shomat Tashakur Mikonam. Hamchanin, Bepasse Mizbani Samimane, Badil Paziratan, as Injanib, Vahayat Hamra, Niz Sebas Kuzaran. On behalf of the 1.25 billion Indians, I extend warm greetings to the friendly people of Iran. Through ages, the beauty and richness of the Persian heritage has attracted the world in Iran. In Janib, the Numaindegiyas, Yek Milliardo, Divisto Panja, Shahrwande Hindustan, the Millet Dust, Vadustashtani Iran, Durud Mifristan. Dar Adwar Mukhtalif Tariq, زیبائی و غنای میراث فارسی ہمواره جہانیان را مجذوب ایران ساخته است فار می وزٹنگ ایران از انڈیڈ ا گریٹ پریویلج سفر به ایران برای این جانب حقیقتا مایه افتخار است ایکسلنسی انڈیا اینڈ ایران ار نوٹ New friends. Our dosti is age old age history. Through centuries, our societies have stayed connected through art and architecture, ideas and traditions, and culture and commerce. علی جناب دوستی ہند و ایران دوستی تازه نیست از قرنها پیش دو جامعه ایران و هند از طریق هنر و معماری افکار و اندیشه ها آداب و رسوم فرهنگ و بازرگانی As friends, 
and neighbors. We have shared interests in each other's growth and prosperity and joys and sorrows. به عنوان دوست و همسایه همواره ما در ترقی پیشرفت و شادی و غم همدیگر شریک بوده ایم We can never forget that Iran was among the first countries to come forward in support when earthquake struck my state Gujarat in 2001 هرگز فراموش نمی کنیم که به هنگام زلزله سال 2001 در استان من یعنی گجرات ایران جزء نخستین کشورهایی بوده که به یاری ما شتافته است Similarly India is proud to have stood with the people of Iran during your difficult times همچنین هندوستان افتخار دارد که همیشه در مواقف سختی و دشواری در کنار ایران استاده است I compliment the leadership of Iran for their far-sighted diplomacy این جانب از رهبری ایران به خاطر دیپلماسی دور اندیشانش ستایش میکنم Excellency we had last met in Ufa in 2015 your leadership and the clarity of your vision have deeply impressed me Ali janab ma akhirin bar dar UFA 2015 ba yek digar mulaqat dashtein qudrat rehbari va shaffafiyat basirat shoma mara be shiddat teht taasir qarar dade ast in our meeting today we focus on the full range of our در دیدار امروز ما بر مسائل گوناگون فیما بین تمرکز کرده ایم We have changed views on the emerging regional situation and global issues of common concern ما امروز درباره اوضاع کنونی پیشروی منطقه و مسائل مشترک دو کشور در سطح بین المللی هماندیشی و تبادل نظر کرده ایم مسئله همکاری و مشارکت ما و یک دیگر در این زمینه بسیار حائز اهمیت است in our strategic partnership dastawardhay didar imruz be vije qaradadhay ke be imza rasid fasl tazai ra dar arse hamkarihay strategik do keshwar raqam mizanad the welfare of our people is guiding our broad based economic ties biguman refah millathay ma dar giruh in hamkariha همکاری های گسترده اقتصادی است Expanded trade ties, deeper connectivity, including railways, partnerships in oil and gas sector, fertilizers, education and culture sphere 
are driving our overall economic engagements. Hamkari haye gustardeye tejari ertebatate karamade jadbei bevije rahahan musharakat dar sanaye naft gaz anwa'e kud آموزش و سایر زمینه های فرهنگی ارکان اصلی و کلی همکاری های اقتصادی ما را تشکیل می دهد قرارداد دو جانبه توسعه بندر چهابهار و زیر ساختهای ان تخصیص و تأمین 500 میلیون دلار اعتبار از طرف هندوستان برای این مهم سنگ بنای اصلی این اقدام بزرگ خواهد بود The major effort for boost economic growth in the region We are committed to take steps for early implementation of the agreements signed today. Bitardid in Qarardad de Pishraft to Rushte Ekhtesadi Mantaghe Munjar Khahashud. Bama Musamam Hastim Kiharche Zutar in Qarardad Haro Amali Besazim. Friends, later today we are going to sign the trilateral transport and transit agreement with participation. همچنین امروز ما یک قرارداد سه جانبه حمل و نقل و ترانزیت کالا و مشارکت ایران و هند و افغانستان امضا خواهیم کرد این یک فرصت تاریخی خواهد بود این قرارداد راههای ارتباطی جدیدی را برای ارتباط هرچه نزدیکترین هند ایران و افغانستان باز خواهد کرد انڈیا و ایران آلسو شیر اکروشل سٹیک این پیس سٹیبلیٹی اینڈ سپرسپریٹی آف در ایجن ہند و ایران در امنیت صبات و پیشرفت منطقه نیز نقشی تعیین کننده دارند وی آلسو ہیو شیئرڈ کنسرنس ایٹ اسپریڈ اف فورسز اف انسٹیبلٹی ریڈیکلزم اینڈ ٹیرر ان اور ریجن ما در نسبت به گسترش نیروهای ناامن کننده افراطی گری و تروریسم در منطقه نیز نگرانی ها و مناسبات مشترکی داریم وی ہیو اگریڈ ٹو کنسلٹ کلوزلی اینڈ ریگولرلی آن کمبیٹنگ تھریٹس آف ٹیررزم ریڈیکلزم ڈرگ ٹرافکنگ اینڈ سائبر کرائم ما توافق کرده ایم کہ در برخورد به خطر تروریزم افراتگری حمل و نقل مواد مخدر و جرائم سایبری به نحو نزدیک و پیوسته هماندیشی کنیم 
We have also agreed to enhance interaction between our defense and security institutions on regional and maritime security. Hamchunin tawafuk kardeim ke hamkari haye sazman haye defai va amniyati do keshwar dar khusus mantaqe be bije dar zamineye amniyat daryai ra tasil koni. Friends, the past history of our ties. Had been reached. President Rouhani and I would leave no stone unturned to work for its glorious future. Dostan, hamkari hai do jane be ma tar thul tarikh hamware gani va ustawar budast. Rais Jamhur Rouhani va in jane dar masir ayande darakshan in monasebat az hiç kosheshi. Our friendship will be a factor of stability in our region. Dostiye do millet amile sabat termantaye ma khahat bud. Later today, I look forward to calling on his eminence, the honourable supreme leader, to advance our ties further. Ham chenin karar ast ke injane. به حضور مقام معظم رهبری برسم تا برای پیش برد به مناسبات دو جانب اقداماتی به عمل بیاید where we are now and where we could be it most beautifully said in a couplet from Galib let me end with it این که ما اکنون کجا هستیم و کجا میتوانیم باشیم به بهترین شکل در یک بیت از غالب دهلوی بیان شده است اجازه بفرمایید سخنان رم را و این بیت به انجام برسانم غالب نے کہا ہے جنونت گربے نفس خود تمام است جے کاشی تابے کاشان نمگام است means once we make once we make up our mind, the distance between Kashi and Kashan is only half step. Ghalib Dehlavi gufta ast, Junoonat garb nafs khud tamam ast, ze Kashi tab Kashan nimgam ast. Yani aga ma tasmeem mohkam begirim, fasile dar bain Kashi ta Kashan nimgam bish nist. I once again sincerely thank you, Excellency, for inviting me to Iran. I also thank you all. Ali Janab, Yekbar Digar, as Shoma Bekhatir Dawatam Be Iran, Sebas Kuzaram, as Tamami Shomanis Motashakir. Russian President Vladimir Putin has praised India's foreign policy and described Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi as a great patriot. Listen in. Almost one and a half billion people, tangible development results. That gives reasons to everyone's respect and admiration for India. Lot has been done under the leadership of Prime Minister Modi. Naturally, he's a patriot of his country and his idea of making India matters. It matters both economically and ethically. India has made tremendous steps forwards in development and the future belongs in India. 
Putin was addressing a conference in Moscow where he also mentioned that he was considering attending the G20 summit in Bali next month. The Russian president added that India has come a long way from being a British colony to an independent country. According to Putin, the ties between India and Russia are built on the foundation of really close allied relations. He also said the two countries have supported each other and he's confident it's going to remain that way in the future as well. Putin also mentioned that Russia has increased fertilizer supplies by 7.6 times after a request from India. The Russian president said the coming decade will be the most dangerous since the end of World War II. Putin further accused the West of inciting the war in Ukraine and playing a dangerous, bloody and dirty game. Ties between Russia and India have strengthened in recent months with India's uh, dependence on Russia increasing. In July, Russia became India's second largest oil uh, supplier. The move also saw a considerable amount of adverse reactions from the West, but India defended its oil purchases from Russia, saying it has to source oil from where it is the cheapest. Also, India has maintained a clear and unwavering stand on the ongoing Ukraine war. New Delhi states the conflict can only be resolved through dialogue and diplomacy, and that peace must be restored at the earliest. Putin's remarks regarding the Indian Prime Minister come a day after the announcement that India's External Affairs Minister, Dr. S.J. Shankar, would travel to Moscow for a day-long meeting with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. The meeting will hold a significant uh, importance as it will take place just ahead of the G20 summit. It's important to recognize now this recent meeting with Secretary Blinken and the Foreign Affairs, External Affairs Minister of India, just how key they are. He's very nervous and talking about a new international order that he wants India to be a part of. I strongly encourage you listen to the whole thing. My friend, uh, welcome back to Washington. Uh, it is always uh, a pleasure to meet Minister Shankar, whether it's uh, here in New York, in Delhi, Melbourne, Bali, or anywhere else. Um, and I think our own conversations, um, deep extended conversations that have taken place, in fact, over many years, because we were counterparts when I was last um, at the State Department as Deputy Secretary. I think it reflects the fact that um, the partnership between our countries, between India and the United States, is simply one of the most consequential in the world. It's vital to addressing virtually every uh, global challenge that our people face, whether it's health security, climate change, food security, upholding a free and open uh, international order, to name just a few. Uh, over the past years, we have made real progress in elevating that partnership uh, bilaterally, that is directly between us, through institutions like the Quad and the G20, uh, and in international organizations, including at the United Nations. Uh, today we talked about how we can further advance our shared security, uh, economic and, and geopolitical goals. Last week in New York, we were both witness to genuine unity among the vast majority of UN member states, developing and developed, big and small, north and south, on the need to work together to address these shared challenges that all of our people face, as well as to uphold the United Nations Charter and its core principles, including sovereignty, territorial integrity, and human rights. Um, we're grateful 
for the Minister's partnership and leadership on these fronts. That includes in the Security Council, where, uh, as we were together, uh, he underscored the message that Prime Minister Modi delivered recently in Uzbekistan that, and I quote, today's era is not of war. And then in the General Assembly, where the Prime Minister said of India, and I quote, we are on the side that respects the UN Charter and its founding principles, end quote. So is the United States. We recognize that to meet the challenges we face, members of the UN must not only uphold the Charter, but also modernize the institution, including by making the Security Council more inclusive. Uh, that's why in his address to the General Assembly, President Biden expressed his support for increasing the number of both permanent and non-permanent representatives of the Security Council, a long-standing goal of India. This includes permanent seats for those nations we've long supported and uh, permanent seats for countries in Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean. In his own General uh, Assembly address, uh, the Minister uh, also highlighted the food, fuel, and fertilizer crises that have hit countries as they struggle to rebuild from the COVID pandemic. And indeed, if you look at how we spent most of our week last week at the United Nations, it was focusing on these very challenges. Um, we've been working to rally allies and partners, not only to help people uh, around the world most affected by these crises, but also to make sure that we are part of the solution to creating durable ways of dealing with these challenges. For example, on food security, not only responding to the emergency need, uh, but also helping uh, countries develop durable agricultural uh, productive capacity. Um, we know as well that each of these crises has been exacerbated by Russia's war in Ukraine, and it's why we continue to marshal international pressure on President Putin to end his war of choice. Uh, we also held a quad ministerial on the margins of the UN, with uh, uh, the minister and I continuing to work with our Australian and Japanese counterparts to realize what is a shared vision uh, of a free, open Indo-Pacific that's connected, that's prosperous, that's secure, and that is resilient. Um, and here, it's worth emphasizing that we're bringing complementary strengths to bear on problems that none of us can address effectively alone. A few examples, cybercrime. You saw in the joint statement that we issued uh, in New York last week uh, our agreement to deny safe haven to ransomware operations emanating from within our respective countries uh, because a foothold anywhere can be used to stage attacks everywhere uh, and to assist one another in the face of cyber attacks against critical infrastructure. One of the clearest ways that Quad partners can continue to deliver for people across the region is by being there in times of their greatest need. Uh, in New York, we also took a step that will increase our capacity to do that. Uh, we signed a set of guidelines to deepen our coordination among the four countries on humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. Uh, in today's meeting and uh, as well at dinner last night, we also talked about ways to further strengthen our strategic partnership and advance shared objectives. This includes helping one another prevent a climate catastrophe and adapt to the changes to come because the future of our people and people everywhere depends in no small part on hitting the ambitious targets that we both set. That includes India's goal of installing 500 gigawatts of non-fossil fuel capacity by 2030, which would mean more than 60 percent of India's electricity comes from non-polluting energy sources. We're helping to do that through the U.S.-India Climate and Clean Energy Agenda 2030 partnership, which is helping to foster joint research and development 
mobilizing finance from the private sector and multilateral institutions, and finding ways to scale up innovative clean energy technologies. As the world's two biggest democracies, we're also committed to an enduring project, as our founders put it, of striving to form a more perfect union. This is a project for both of us. Uh, we have to work together to show that our democracies can meet our people's needs, and we must continue to hold ourselves, both of us, as well as our fellow democracies, to our core values, including respect for universal human rights, like freedom of religion and belief and freedom of expression, which makes our democracies stronger. Uh, we explored ways to keep building our dynamic economic partnership. Uh, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which we launched in May, is one way we'll do this. Just a few weeks ago, India affirmed its intention to participate in three of the framework's pillars on supply chains, clean economy, and fair economy. Uh, the U.S. is India's largest trading partner, with $157 billion last year in bilateral trade. We're India's largest source of foreign direct investment, with a diverse range of U.S. companies investing $45 billion in India, Google, Microsoft, Whirlpool, Boeing, GE, and I could go on. But we see more room to grow, and to do it in a way that creates jobs for workers in both of our countries. Uh, the U.S.-India Commercial Dialogue, the U.S.-India CEO Forum, will give us more opportunities to do that in the months ahead. So these are just some of the ways, multilaterally, regionally, bilaterally, that we're bringing this close relationship between India and the United States even closer together. And with India holding the presidency of the Security Council in December and taking over the presidency of the G20 next year, we'll be able to drive more concerted global cooperation and action together. Um, at an event this weekend, uh, you called, Mr. Minister, the shift in U.S.-India relations the single biggest change that you've observed in decades of service as a diplomat. Uh, the minister said, and I quote, it did not change only because of government policies. The relationship changed because of Indian-Americans. And I could not agree more. We're grateful to have an Indian-American community that does so much to deepen ties between our countries, as well as to shape the fabric of this country. Uh, and I'd add that we're also grateful to communities in India, including of American origin, that are doing their part to strengthen the relationship for the good of both of our countries and both of our peoples. With that, Jack, over to you. Thank you. Uh, it is uh, really a great pleasure to join Secretary Blinken uh, at this media event uh, at the conclusion of what I can honestly say is a very productive morning of discussions. Uh, I was last here in April, uh, and obviously a lot of things in the world have changed since then. Uh, while we have spent uh, uh, quite some time this morning, uh, I thank the Secretary and his wife for hosting us yesterday at a working dinner. Uh, this was really a very gracious gesture, and I think uh, an occasion that both of us put to good use. Obviously, a large part of our deliberations uh, today were devoted to the strengthening of our bilateral relationship. Uh, most of you would readily understand that it has grown very significantly uh, in scope and depth over the last few years. We engage each other uh, across pretty much every domain, and the quality of our cooperation, as indeed of our conversations, have steadily improved. In today's meeting, uh, we discussed our political coordination, working together in plurilateral and multilateral formats, and exchanging assessments and, uh, uh, on uh, collaborating on 
important uh, regional issues and global challenges. I would specifically mention the Ukraine conflict and the Indo-Pacific situation in that regard. I, share with, uh, I shared with uh, Secretary Blinken my experience of interactions during the UN General Assembly about the deep anxieties in the global south on fuel, on food, on fertilizers, uh, the increasing salience of green growth, digital development and affordable health is today very, very evident. We must not let current developments jeopardize Agenda 2030 on SDGs or to deflect us from climate action and climate justice commitments. Our cooperation in different bilateral domains is progressing vigorously. Uh, naturally, Secretary Blinken and I did a comprehensive talk-taking, but separately I met uh, Defense Secretary Austin and Commerce Secretary Raimondo to review their particular areas. Uh, I participated in a particularly interesting uh, roundtable uh, organized by the National Science Foundation. Uh, I will be meeting business leaders over the next two days. And given the bipartisan support that we have long enjoyed in the U.S. Congress, I look forward to interacting with some of its prominent members. There will also be an occasion for me to engage think tanks and policy analysts so that there is a better understanding of India's concerns and interests. Having said that, uh, there are particular issues in the current global context that shape the evolution of our cooperation and therefore merit your attention as well. Prominent among them is our commitment to address the global volatility which has arisen from the COVID, from conflicts and from climate events. India and the US have a strong interest in encouraging more resilient and reliable supply chains. This requires policy decisions as well as practical measures involving the business community. We are focused on those goals. Furthermore, the digital world mandates a greater emphasis on trust and transparency. This too has been the subject of detailed conversations and follow-up action. When it comes to critical and emerging technologies, we both see the value of expanding trusted research. Our national security, our economic security, our technology security are all enhanced by closer collaboration. It is also in our mutual interest to facilitate the development and mobility of talent. We agreed that impediments in this regard should be addressed. There is a keen interest in India's national education policy, and we will explore how that can best serve to expand our partnership. On mobility, specifically visas, uh, this is particularly crucial given its centrality to education, business, technology, and family reunions. There have been some challenges of late, uh, and uh, I flag it to Secretary Blinken and his team, and I have every confidence that they will look at some of these problems seriously and positively. All these issues and more were evaluated not just in our bilateral context, but also from the perspective of the Quad and the I2U2. We are keen to move forward on the Indo-Pacific economic framework. I saw some creative thinking on how to repurpose established mechanisms for more contemporary collaboration. Our two countries are, contributed, are committed to contributing to the betterment of the global commons. True to our traditions, we rise above narrow national interest to serve the needs of the larger international community. 
we do so on the basis of our belief in a rules-based order, in our respect for international law, and in our adherence to the UN Charter. India-US cooperation is today visible across the length and breadth of the Indo-Pacific, and perhaps even beyond. It has many facets and expresses itself in different ways. We particularly value closer coordination in the Indian subcontinent, where we perceive that our convergences are very strong. It is essential that democracy, pluralism, progress, development, and prosperity are nurtured. Conversely, we must counter radicalization, extremism, and fundamentalism. India is widening its international footprint, and there are many more regions where we will be intersecting with American interests. It is to our mutual benefit that this be a complementary process. Coming out of the UNGA, the UNGA, the reform of the UN is a particularly topical subject. We appreciate the positive approach of the US to this issue, reflected in the position articulated by President Biden himself. We look forward to working with the US to take this further. I also expressed appreciation at the strong cooperation that we have got from the US on the question of tackling international terrorism. In particular, I refer to the listing of well-known and wanted terrorists by the UN sanction process. In many other formats too, our two countries collaborate to keep the world safer and more secure. We spoke over the last two days of our commitment to practicing and furthering democracy, human rights, and good governance. Each country approaches this set of issues from their history, tradition, and societal context. Our yardstick for judgment are the integrity of the democratic processes, the respect and credibility that they command with the people, and the non-discriminatory delivery of public goods and services. India does not believe that the efficacy or indeed the quality of democracy should be decided by vote banks. This is an area where we look forward to a healthy exchange of views. There will be convergences and best practices that we can both profit by and perhaps even share with third countries. India will be taking over the presidency of the G20 at the end of this year. I appreciate the expression of support by Secretary Blinken towards making our chairship successful. Once again, I thank the Secretary for his warm welcome, for the open and comfortable conversations we have had, and for his commitment to further what we both believe is the critical relationship of our era. Thank you. We'll now turn to questions. We'll start with Ian Marlowe of Bloomberg. Thank you. Uh, Secretary Blinken, uh, we've seen several reported uh, leaks in the Nord Stream pipeline system uh, that Germany has said could be an act of sabotage. What's the U.S. assessment of what we're seeing there, particularly given Russian, previous Russian moves to curtail gas supplies? And can you speak a little bit more broadly to the pressure that Europe is coming, on, co coming under as winter and a potential energy crisis looms? Uh, and uh, External Affairs Minister Jay Shankar, thank you for taking our questions. First, I'm wondering if you could offer India's perspective on U.S. efforts to implement a global price cap on Russian energy. Would India consider joining that kind of price cap mechanism, and do you see it as potentially a way for India, as well as, well as other countries in the global south, 
to get more leverage and negotiate even cheaper prices for fuel. Uh, and just a second question, if I may, uh, can you talk a little bit about India's plans going forward uh, for military hardware and equipment, given the sanctions that the U.S. and others are putting on uh, Russian industry and given India's historic reliance on Russian technology. Uh, how is India trying to head off challenges related to Russia being potentially unable to service that equipment going forward as a result of sanctions? Can Russia still fulfill all of India's requirements? And will India look at perhaps more purchases of, say, American or Israeli military equipment? Thank you. Ian, thanks very much. Um, on the question on energy security and Nord Stream in particular, uh, a few things. Uh, the leaks are under investigation. Um, their initial reports indicating that uh, this may be the result of an attack or some kind of sabotage, but these are initial reports and we haven't confirmed that yet. But if it is confirmed, that's clearly in, in no one's interest. Um, now, my understanding is the leaks will not have a significant impact on Europe's energy resilience. Um, and What's critical is that we are working day in, day out, both on a short-term basis and a long-term basis, to address uh, energy security for, uh, for Europe and, uh, and, for that matter, around the world. Uh, short-term, just to cite a few examples, we are working on implementing the uh, oil price cap to keep Russian oil flowing, but uh, at a steep discount. Uh, that, uh, of course, will deny Russia excess revenues that uh, it would use to prosecute its aggression against uh, Ukraine, uh, and at the same time, as I said, keep oil flowing on world markets. Uh, we're working to continue to surge LNG supplies to Europe in cooperation with global partners, uh, including uh, in the Indo-Pacific. It's worth noting that our own uh, oil production is up by more than 500,000 barrels per day this year. Our LNG exports are up uh, more than 20 percent since last year. In fact, we became the largest LNG supplier uh, to the European Union and the UK this year. Uh, and we've become the largest uh, overall LNG exporter this year. Um, and of course, as you know, we've been tapping into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at unprecedented levels. Others are doing the same. This is having an impact both on supply and on price. Long term, um, we're supporting efforts to reduce uh, reliance on fossil fuels, including LNG over the long term, including through a task force that we established with the European Union uh, some months ago on energy security that's working very actively looking at ways both to uh, reduce demand, uh, to pursue renewables, to make the transition. Uh, and then we're working with global partners to reduce dependence uh, on fossil fuels and accelerate the transition to renewables beyond Europe. It's a long way of saying that there are clear challenges in the, um, in the months ahead that we're addressing, but there is also a very significant opportunity to do two things. One, to finally end the dependence uh, of Europe on Russian energy, and thus um, the position that uh, Europe is in of being on the receiving end of the weaponization of energy uh, by Russia, and also to accelerate the, the transition to, uh, to renewables and to make sure that we're addressing the climate challenge that we face. So we can uh, and we are working to do all of this in a way that provides energy security for Europeans and uh, not only gets, gets us through the next months, but leaves us in a better, stronger position for the years ahead. Um, on the price cap, uh, we had a brief discussion on it uh, this morning. 
uh, have been used very effectively to do just that, as we've seen in northeast uh, Ukraine and as we see as well uh, in the south. And um, again, because there is no change at all in the uh, territory that is being uh, annexed by the, by the Russians as a um, matter for, for us or for uh, the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians will continue to do what they need to do to get back the land that has been taken from them. We will continue to support them in that effort. We'll take a final question from Rina Bart from for Rina Bardwaj. I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry Nazira we don't have time. Uh, from Rina Bardwaj, Asian News International. Uh, Mr. Jay Shankar and Secretary Blinken, thank you for doing this. Um, Minister Jay Shankar, you've had a very busy week at ANGA, uh, meeting all your counterparts. Uh, now, uh, did they express their worries about uh, Ukraine, which you mentioned in your remarks, of course, but also Taiwan? And uh, did you discuss the impact of these developments on the global economy with Secretary Blinken? Uh, how, are the, how are the two countries going to work together to address these concerns? And my second question to Secretary Blinken is, um, you, you talked about F-16 and the obligation that the U.S. Mm. has. Uh, but can you further clarify what counter-terror uh, terror threats does Pakistan face and why is there a need for these, um, uh, these fighter jets? Mm. Also, there's a discussion with your uh, Pakistani counterpart to improve ties with India and to make the region more stable. What was their response? You did give them an advice to maintain peace. Uh, what, 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 is, what was the advice that you gave them? Um, you know, uh, I had, of course, a lot of meetings uh, in the UN in that week. I met, I guess, roughly about half the delegations uh, who were there. Uh, and uh, a common concern among them was the anxiety about, uh, about uh, global economic volatility and anxiety about you know, sharply increased energy prices, uh, of food inflation and food availability, uh, of uh, fertilizers which will impact food next year, of disrupted trade, uh, of shipping, of insurance, of airline movements, of travel. So uh, this was uh, honestly uh, not a, uh, an optimistic uh, global mood uh, which uh, you got from your colleagues. Uh, and uh, uh, I think uh, in particular uh, the, you know, what the impact, the consequences of the Ukraine conflict has been uh, on many of these issues we, uh, I spoke about. And also I think the, uh, the prospect of instability or, uh, uh, you know, or, or on, on in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, uh, because uh, today Asia uh, and Indo-Pacific is so central to to global trade uh, and in particularly in some very critical areas. So these were very, very widely uh, prevalent uh, concerns. Uh, we had a good discussion about it yesterday evening. Uh, and uh, uh, we do think uh, today, I mean, I speak for India, but I also speak to some degree for the relationship uh, having an impact on the world. We think the right thing today is to find ways of stabilizing the global economy, of, uh, of softening prices, of uh, making sure that uh, global trade and is more predictable, uh, that the sources of anxieties and tensions are less. 
because at the end of the day, that's really, you know, uh, Prime Minister Modi, of course, said this is not an era of war, but this is an era of where we seek development, where we seek prosperity, where we seek progress. Uh, and and I think uh, India nationally and India through its key partners would like to do more to, to strengthen those trends. Um, on the question of the uh, the F-16s again, uh, and it's important to be very clear, this is, as I said, about sustaining an existing program, not adding a new one, and we have a responsibility to do that wherever we're engaged in the uh, provision of uh, defense equipment like F-16s. And second, as to what these are for, um, there are clear terrorism threats that continue to emanate uh, from Pakistan itself, as well as from neighboring countries. And whether it is uh, TTP that may uh, be targeting Pakistan, whether it's ISIS Khorasan, whether it's uh, Al-Qaeda, I think the threats are clear, well known, and we all have an interest in making sure uh, that um, we have the means to, uh, to deal with them. Uh, and that's uh, what, uh, what this is about. Um, more broadly, we always encourage our friends to resolve their, uh, their differences through diplomacy, through dialogue. That hasn't changed. It won't change. It would not be appropriate for me to characterize Pakistan's response just as I wouldn't characterize uh, our friends' response in, in a similar conversation. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Your Excellencies. Now let's focus on the sauce. What nations does India really align with in respects to Armenia and Iran? See, that's the focus of the next show. This was just building it up. So that way you can see what has been done, what is being done, both visibly and invisibly. On that note, make sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss another episode. Now as you watch India on your screen and everything you've learned about how smart and tactical they've been with their bases across the Indian Ocean, extending all the way to Iran, the way they handle their diplomatic relations. Yesterday's show was focusing on what is going on in the area, pretty much giving you a general key player game. Key position though, Armenia. And that is about to come into focus. You're going to be able to see what they don't want you to see. You're, be, you're going to actually be able to understand things. See, that's the difference between labeling something real news and labeling something fake news. Just label it as information and your gut and those six inches, amazing six inches between your ears will help you discern it. Remember, they deployed a whole medical thing to hijack your molecular biology. In other words, you can be programmed. And you can tune into frequencies more than you know. So on that note, let's take a sneak peek as to how we're bringing it on into focus via Armenia. India has signed a significant export order for missiles, rockets, and ammunition to Armenia. 
while the value of contracts has not been revealed it is estimated that india will supply weapons worth rupees 2000 crore to the country over the coming months sources told et that the order includes the first ever export of indigenous pinaka multi barrel rocket launchers armenia is engaged in a prolonged border conflict with neighbor azerbaijan so how is the armenia azerbaijan conflict emerging so you know the war has been you know uh, on for a while the two countries have been fighting over uh, you know disputed area of land uh, and uh, the fighting uh, comes in fits and starts you know sometimes there's a period of peace sometimes there are attacks as of now uh, the we are seeing some border conflicts and a build up by azerbaijani forces and uh, it seems that this uh, conflict will go on for a while there is no quick solution to this and i think we will see continued fighting between the two countries over its territories azerbaijan benefited in its 2020 campaign from turkish made and supplied drones that paralyze armenian artillery with russia preoccupied in ukraine it appears azerbaijan has decided to press ahead militarily to further its gains so it is interesting to see how india emerged as the key arms supplier during the conflict so india has signed a uh, you know major deal to supply a variety of arms and ammunition to armenia and this uh, deal was signed uh, earlier this month and it is quite a significant uh, deal because it includes uh, multi uh, uh, barrel rocket launchers includes anti tank missiles a range of ammunition and other equipment and uh, India has been in talks with Armenia in the past even 2 years ago we supplied them a set of uh, weapon locating radars and other equipment so you know as 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 India is emerging and looking to emerge as a global weapon supplier it is finding uh, friendly countries with which there is no conflict and uh, friendly relations to which they can supply arms but Armenia has emerged as one of those other countries uh, include Philippines uh, we've supplied arms to uh vietnam uh, bangladesh of course sri lanka nepal and armenia is the first uh, major uh, sales uh, in 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 that region of central asia on the other hand turkey and azerbaijan has been unwavering supporters of pakistan's position on kashmir issue of late the trio also launched a joint exercise last year called three brothers which came soon after azerbaijan's successful 44 day 2020 military campaign against armenia Should India be worried about the coming together of Azerbaijan, Pakistan, Turkey? See, there has been a trend which is visible now that uh, these three countries have been uh, talking on on similar terms, and uh, the the Turkey-Pakistan alliance is already well known. Turkey has been supporting Pakistan on the Kashmir issue. It has raised it in the UN several times, and uh, I think uh, because Turkey is a, is a major arms supplier to Azerbaijan. uh we see convergences between the interests of the three countries of course all three are you know islamic nations uh but beyond that also they have come together on uh, issues which uh, uh, are not uh, in in india's favor and i think the primary uh, instigator there is pakistan but it is using its connect with turkey to influence third nations like azerbaijan and i think there will be more such alliances which india will have to look out for all right can you guys hear me I hope you guys can hear me and that the audio is coming in clear. Let's see. Let me check the chat. Has it come through? Is it coming through? Perfect. Now, I want you guys to know that tomorrow's show will hopefully wrap it up for you, but let's just believe this for a second. 
China, or let's just say the enemy owns them all, signs are becoming very, very apparent. Now let's pretend that I helped orchestrate the demise of evil of the Son of Man. I would allow the installation of the worst administration in Babylon. I'd do it in such a way that the people would be able to see through the fog. The Babylonian leaders would disseminate this fog, but this horrific government, these rulers, would be allowed to wreak havoc, but with no veil. I would ensure the enemy, the very boisterous enemy, be so transparent with no cover that the people would see. I would sit back on my couch and observe... After all, tyrants are rigid and predictable. And if I were to orchestrate something like this, it would confuse the enemy. But it would save millions of lives that were intended to be lost. Such a plan, if ever, a plan like this, would require extraordinary people, people that don't exist in this construct. People who would make the masses, by their words, by their frequency, hear and see through the fog. They would not allow his children to walk blindly. He would let his children wipe the mud from their eyes, wipe the dust off their knees, and inspire them to self-govern to use their free will and realize that at a time, as it is now, is extraordinary, and that all that is happening seems to be guided by hands and voices that are out of this world. On that note, God bless everyone. See, you never saw that happening in the past month, and enjoy your evening.